I'm Naira Antoun, Director of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the podcast from Century International. Today, I'm talking with Kate Kuritsky and Lubna Darwish. This project is part of a special project where we brought together topic experts from the Middle East, Europe and North America to see what we could learn when we break down area-based silos. Today's conversation came out of the Gender and Sexuality Working Group. Kate Kuritsky is an assistant professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the Western University, Canada. She's a founding member of the Canada section of the Memory Studies Association. And Lubna Darwish is a feminist and gender and human rights officer at the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, a leading human rights NGO not only in Egypt, but also the global south. Thank you both for joining us. So I wanted to ask you, Kate, first, and we've seen in different parts of the world this Um, a kind of specter of gender and something that's been called gender ideology. And we even saw in, uh, for example, in Brazil in 2018, Judith Butler, who is a contemporary philosopher and writes around about gender, um, at a conference she was co-organizing, there were uh, large protests and I think her effigy was was burned. How does that happen that like a a gender professor comes to be seen as this kind of threat? Um, hi, hi, Naira. Thanks for the question. Let me kind of set the the context of um, of that threat and that fear. Um, and I'll start with Judith Butler's uh, home turf, um, U.S., and then and then move us um, to Eastern Europe. So, just some examples. Just a few, couple of days ago, on March one, American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit against the Department of Family and Protective Services and Governor Greg, Greg Abbott in Texas for their ongoing investigations of parents who provide gender-affirming care to their transgender children. So the investigations imply that if you affirm your gender gender of your uh, trans child, you may be considered an abusive parent. Uh, So that's one. Um, Second, 40 states in the U.S. allow gay and trans panic defense in court. This means that murder and assault of LGBTQ people may be blamed on the victim and may excuse prosecutions. Third, since 2016, American states filed 338 bills aimed to limit most or all abortions. 69 of them were filed in 2022 alone. Now, they're all sitting in abeyance and they're waiting for Roe versus Wade to be um, uh, overturned. And it may be overturned because two bills are winding their way to the Supreme Court as we speak. I mean, we're seeing the biggest threats to abortion rights in the U.S. that we've And they are for once, for the first time, they're kind of becoming real, given the composition of the court and given the frenetic activity. The activity itself tells you that that someone is is sensing sensing the the change in the air. The bill that aimed to protect abortion outside of Roe versus Wade has just been, has just failed in the Senate. So another example, between 2015 and 2020, states passed 347 anti-transgender laws, 117 of them in 2021 alone. Um, so what, yeah, sorry, Kate, and what, what unites these different uh, examples that we see in, in the U.S.? Uh, so, so far, it seems that what unites them is just this idea, like, 
preoccupation with regulation of gender and sexuality. But what is really unique in the United States, and I would, I can talk about it more, is that it kind of brings another aspect to it, and that has to do with um, voting rights and uh, banning of books and critical race theory. So let me just give you some examples there. As of January 14, 2022, there were 250 bills filed in the legislatures, meaning to restrict voting rights. That's this year alone. And everybody who studies this will agree that restricting voting rights will affect African-Americans. Two bills protecting voting rights or expanding them just failed in the Senate. Um, just so I don't leave you without, you know, talking about banning of books and maybe um, sadly soon witches, five states have banned teaching of uh, books related to critical race theory, by which they mean not critical race theory, but they mean uh, black people, the history of black people in America. And to bring it full circle, Tennessee school board just banned um, uh, Mouse, the comic novel by Art Spiegelman about Holocaust, and 15 states just banned George uh, Johnson, deeply personal book, All Boys Aren't Blue, detailing his life as black and queer child. Sorry, I was just going to say the mouse book is one because I think the rhetoric around it was actually around um, an objection to a case of nudity. So it kind of actually brings together this sort of fears around panic, uh, panic around gender and what they're doing in school books. And actually this also uh, race uh, attached to the critical race theory uh, scare. Exactly. So it's exactly like bringing together this preoccupation with the body, preoccupation of particular body, and it has to do with both race, gender and sexuality, which is not unlike that, which is happening in other places. In all of these cases, just to stay in the U.S. for a moment, um, they, they seem to coalesce around a kind of fear, right? That so that feminism is taking over or gender is is taking over, and and they could perhaps be seen as a as a, as a backlash in in, in some way. Um, yeah, maybe I'll turn to you now, Lubna, and you can tell me if there are resonances with that kind of thing. Um, in, in the Middle East. I know you work in Egypt specifically, but um, in the region. Yeah, and actually I'll take exactly from where Kate uh, stopped, this sense of, like, and you as well, and, and the sense of feminists being a threat and feminism taking over, which is, of course, really funny when you think of an Egyptian context of the region, and, like, actually the world. Uh, but uh, there is a sense that every day we wake up to find a new issue related to women, sexuality, the family, morality being brought up and creating a huge social discussion where there is a sense of panic on the other side, a moral panic where there is a sense all the time that the family as an institution is under attack and children are targeted to kind of be converted to whatever they're going to be converted into. I have no idea what. But there is a sense, this constant sense that there is so much mobility and discussions and aggression related to gender issues in general. And, and issues related to women's rights, LGBT rights, or, or actually any minority's rights, are seen when, when they're attacked, these rights. Uh, they're not attacked in the sense of, like, we are the powerful side and therefore we can actually crush you. There is a sense of vulnerability that you have no idea where it comes from. There's a sense that they're defending 
the family. Then the, in the weakest position, where the, even though the, the, the law, the, the, the state, the, the religions are all on their side, there is a sense of, um, on the economy, uh, there is a sense that they're the minority or in a very vulnerable position and they're defending themselves. And language related, especially to defense of the family as an institution uh, and defense of the children and weaponization of children to basically attack women and LGBT individuals and like actually and, and any group that is trying to get their rights is for me like a, a, tra- a trait that I see here in Egypt and, and around me in the region, but as well that unites many of these kind of uh, spectacles everywhere. Of course, there are differences and different localities, but we, there is a thread of, of commonality. Yeah, I mean, this uh, weaponization of children is so stark in this example that Kate brought up that's, um, you know, around essentially gender-affirming um, care being framed as, as, as child abuse. But right? if I could just jump in, but even... It takes us even further. A child is conceived as that which we consider a fetus, right? So the protection of children begins even with it. You can see it immediately in the in in, in a specter of of abortion, of killing children. So it begins there, and then it takes takes on it's it it they're different emanations. Sorry to jump in. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, no, and we certainly see that across locales, and the contradiction is always noted, right? Of who has a right to, to, to life and and that the fetus ends up with more, more right to, to life. But indeed, it's this idea of being a victim, right? So the, the fetus has no one to speak for them. So we speak in the voice of this, literally voiceless. Um, and, and yeah, on this idea of victimization, so there's the idea of the family being under uh, threat, you're saying, Lubna, but um, perhaps also society as we know it, Right. I would say that maybe in both, I haven't talked about e- e- Eastern Europe, but that's where it becomes more more obvious. But yeah, so I, another kind of uh, aspect that will become visible there is nation. So we have, uh, you know, so anyway, so let me just jump to Russia. That Ru- Russia is has been added, has been fighting the good quote unquote fight for, for quite a while. So it's been protect, trying to get the traditional values protected as a, as, as a protected ground in UNH, uh, United Nations Human Rights Code since 2010. And these values are like protection of human life, family, priority of spiritual life, humanism, and then wait for it, continuity of motherland's history. So it's like, so I am picking them rather tendentiously, but I want to show you that they're kind of bringing the gender, the nation, the family, the spirit of the nation all together. And of course, they they progress with anti-homo propaganda law, like we've all heard about it uh, surrounding Sochi Olympics. Then they have the, the definition of a family, man, woman, joined for procreation. Like it's very specific. That's all what marriage is, is supposed to be about. Um, it. And then in 2017, and that is just kind of incredible, is we have a law that decriminalizes um, domestic battery. So, so that's Russia. And Poland, again, introduces, it's kind of another twist into this. And, you know, we could multiply examples, but it has to do there mostly with ba- battles over abortions, the 
you know, abortion is almost non-existent, even that non-existent right to abortion is seen as too wide. Protests ensue, etc. But I just... So just to clarify, you mean the right to abortion is non-existent, right? Not that abortions are non-existent. No, no. Abortions, of course, happen because, of course, there is never enough. But the right to abortion is only specified on three grounds. The grounds are very restrictive. Uh, So um, abortions happen, but they're they're either um, illegal or on occasion attempt to be criminalized that hasn't yet happened, although the battle continues. But the party that's trying to do all this um, is fought the election in 2019 explicitly on the gender ideology. It was was the gender-wielding feminists and uh, who were threatening the family and the nation. So that like there you have it they like brought it in in this bouquet or the packet of ideas that came together uh so all our three localities like share the similarity uh and and um and offer some local flavor absolutely yeah. and i'm not sure which one of you it was who who mentioned the term moral panics kate maybe you could say a little bit more about moral panics and what what, what it means yeah so i think that maybe the way to think of moral panic is like is a way of doing politics that is organized by the notion of fear and so on the one hand it's a process of organizing of shifting politics from the conflict between right, right and left into what Chantal Mouffe would call a conflict between right and wrong and so it involves construction of threats and presenting them as if they were kind of moral and existential. It's not simply that it's threatening, it's that it's threatening survival. So these are not so like debatable issue. Are we going to, how much taxation are we going to introduce? No, we're talking the survivability of, of a nation. And they are invented, they're manufactured, they're amplified, but they're not invented out of nothing. And this is what Lobna was mentioning before. They tap into this the fears of those who are losing status. They're, they're tapping into the powerful, fearing a challenge to their power. So it's like a very interesting manufacturing of fear and re- re- revealing of of. Of, of fear. So it's, it's in other words, I would say it's like a manufacturing threats and those who are threat, those threats are created. So they appear existential and they're that which is demonized threatens the existing distribution of power and the powerful adopt this language of victimization. And, and that is, I think it's the Sarah Ahmed writes about this is kind of the most insidious move that that those who have power present themselves as those who do not have and demonize the challenger as the powerful, which is, it's absurd on its on its face, but it's effective. Right. So that what's interesting about this demonization, so we always have the demonization of the, of the less powerful, but the demonization of the less powerful as the threat, right? And as actually, as Lubna was saying earlier, as the one with with more power. All right, well, we'll be right back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, director of Century International. We're the heirs to more than 100 years of international policy research at the Century Foundation. Today, we focus on the human consequences of policy crises in the Middle East and North Africa 
and we try to address our findings to a wide international audience. We're especially concerned with decision makers, whether in MENA region capitals or in the West and Washington, whose decisions can greatly change the trajectory of policies in the Middle East. Please visit us at tcf.org to read our reports and listen to our podcasts. Welcome back to Order from Ashes, the Century International Podcast. I'm Naira Anton, and I'm speaking with Kate Koritsky and Lubna Darwish. Uh, Lubna, we were just speaking about um, we were just speaking about moral panics, and I know in Egypt there's actually been um, several. I mean, perhaps across these locales that there have been several. But perhaps you could talk to us, um, yeah, share some of your observations around um, where it looks like where you are. Yeah. <laughs> So, so exactly like what Kay is saying, and, and they do not come out of nowhere. They come because society is changing, the world is changing, people are like organizing and like speaking up. But also there is this uh, sense that sometimes they, they are like created, that create a sense of like urgency about them. So a problem, quote unquote, would be there for a long time. But every now and then there is a sense of urgency that this is the moment, this is something that's going to like be a life or death situation within the next few weeks. So, for example, in Egypt, we see this, these discourses about, like, divorce as a problem. Showing, or a crisis, actually. It's never a problem. It's only a crisis. It's, it cannot be just a problem. So there's a crisis of divorce rates. And this is something I've seen in my lifetime, like, two times. So every few years, you find a crisis of divorce showing up rates. And when you go in history books, you find that this has been happening since the beginning of the 20th century. There is this continuous sense of crisis of um, uh, of divorce rates. And always, like, this is not... And, and hand-in-hand hand comes in the state intervention and criminalization. So if there is a divorce rate issue or like a scene as an issue, then the, the solution is that the state would intervene to allow some people to marry and some people are not ready for marriage yet or like need to be prepared for marriage just to avoid divorce. So it does not become an issue of protecting groups of people who are more vulnerable in front of the law or protecting people against violence or protecting any groups of people. It becomes about like protecting the family and the state as because the family and the state are seen as mirrors to each other. In, in this divorce example, I mean, you're saying it's a, a, a recurrent e- example. And you also mentioned... Um, in the when you started your comments around social change, so are you saying in a way that we have um, this a spike in this recurrent divorce uh, crisis at a time of I don't know social or economic change or women's roles or or changing or is is that what you're saying? Is that the link? Partially that, but also there is like a context where women are showing how uncomfortable, uneasy they are, and like how it basically. Marriage laws are not working in Egypt. Personal status laws are not working for the form of the family that's taking place in reality. They are like this kind of theoretical family in mind that the, the this law deals with, which does not reflect the reality. So therefore, women's rights are not protected in any way. And it's been a debate also as well going on for like 100 years about the personal service law. I didn't want us to get us into this uh, this part about the personal service law. No, but, but I mean, in some ways, you, I mean, you're essentially saying it also functions a little bit as a distraction from any discussion of 
violence in the home or the limitations to the status law, um, but it becomes this panic about the family and the state intervenes in a particular way. So I just wanted to jump in just, and I can talk about it later, that it's a distraction out of issues that have absolutely nothing to do with the family. It could simply have to do with the fact the price of bread is going up and we do not need people to be upset about this. This has to do with, you know, capitalism failure everywhere. And like, anyway, that's just, uh, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. That's a very mm-hmm. useful um, intervention, Kate. And so maybe, and it's actually a really helpful one to, to go back to Egypt where it actually has been a period of, massive uh, change on on multiple levels in the last uh, 10 years. So maybe in that context, you were about to talk about another couple of examples, uh, Lobna. For the last five years, we've seen two very, very clear, big scenes of moral panic. The first was in 2017, in parallel with a concert by a band called Mashua Layla, uh, which, uh, which some like of the attendance of the of the concert, which was like an amazing concert and so big, uh, waved the, the rainbow flag, and that caused like a typical textbook moral panic. So it became like society versus like society as a as a whole, and the state and and basically all Egyptians feeling threatened by a couple of like tens of people who waved a flag, uh, and basically it was followed by a massive. Uh, mass arrests of uh, LGBT individuals or people perceived to be to be gay, and as well as su- charging some of them uh, with organizing uh, to overthrow the state and like basically state security kind of charges. And among them, Sarah Jezi, and who passed away uh, 2020, which kind of like is a prominent, uh, became a prominent figure of this moment in history and to the movement as well in Egypt. So the the Mashua Laila incident was followed by not only a state intervention with arrests and like mass arrests everywhere, but also that we find the church and the, the official Islamic institutions in Egypt talking and organizing around anti-LGBT discourses. The church especially, the Orthodox church is very active on that. And you find like TVs are saying, doing the same thing. There is this, like, it becomes part of, oh God, it was, it was totally insane. It was like, (laughs) but it was a lot of like, uh, it was, it, it was a moment of danger, basically. It was, a, as well, a very important p- moment because some people felt that waving the flag was kind of like a moment where finally some people from the LGBT community are speaking up and showing after, after years of fighting and after years of like actually standing for the grounds, doing this extra step. But at the same time, the, the, the reaction was massive and scary. And actually, it was not only about, it did not become only about uh, LGBT rights or the right to sexuality. It became about way more than that. How the state has a right to educate us, which institutions should intervene. I mean, everybody was asked, basically, every institution in this country was asked to intervene to, to, to shape our morality as individuals at large. The the other example started in southern twenty. Sorry, just to, just to, just to, just to stay with this example for a moment, uh, Lubna. I mean, how else do you explain the this crackdown? Uh, I mean, when you say it's not only it in in part it was um, 
targeting people perceived to be LGBT, right? And we saw like um, entrapment using uh, dating apps and, and things like that. So spreading the net quite wide um, in that target, with that target of people perceived to be queer, but you're saying its effects or um, it's, yeah, wasn't only about um, about sexuality. Like, is there anything about the timing? It was a new regime. So like you said, the entrapment, for example, through dating apps, that's been happening for years since 2013. So the arrests are taking place. This moment becomes about a spectacle. It becomes that this group of people dare to do a public uh, spectacle as well. So the state was performing its morality, was performing kind of like taking the credentials because within a context, basically after Sunday 13, where the state and the Islamists, like the, the political Islam, have been fighting about legitimacy related to morality, it was very important for the state to show that the fact that we're not a political Islam regime does not mean that it's loose. We're very moral. We, we like we can actually put you in line. Don't worry about that. So there is this kind of a moment of showing that that the, the regime is there to protect kind of uh, traditional values. Is there to protect uh, morality, and not only that, is there to educate us on morality. And I think this is a very different thing. It's not only that you're not allowed to perform something, but you're not allowed to feel something or to do something in private. It's, it's about like, you have to be changed. You have to enter within a, a machinery, whether through mosques and churches or schools or universities to come out of on the other side as a good citizen. And I think it's kind of, it shows with, it, with the other example in 2020, it shows exactly how this kind of uh, a circular uh, mechanism. So 2020, uh, we had like a new public prosecutor a few months before that. Uh, COVID was starting. People were in lockdown in Egypt. Those who were lucky enough to be able to go on lockdown because we didn't really have lockdown. Uh, so, and people were using a platform called TikTok. So TikTok, you know about it by now, probably. And so it's in Egypt, it had a different pattern because it was used mostly by younger people, which is a pattern internationally, than other social media. But also it has a class thing. So it was like lower middle class people, working class people. And it's not as cool as other platforms like Instagram or whatever, where like A-class celebrities were there. So in, during the lockdown, so it had the... For, for two years, almost before that, it had its own celebrities, its own closed world of like younger people, more diverse people. And, and uh, during the lockdown, people started like actually using it just because everybody's bored at home. So the, the community of, so the, of, the, of TikTok has changed and the viewers have changed and the users have changed. And that created a moment that I think it's, it's an example of, of pure moral panic because people got in, found that the material that have been presented for years are like a younger, uh, less privileged women economically uh, dancing and like being flirty or being like, I don't know. So just a lip syncing videos, the kinds exactly, of things lip -syncing that exist videos. on TikTok. Exactly. And right. it's mostly cute kind of like thing or like being a bit flirtiest, but like there's nothing that I, nothing that we don't see on Instagram for example we see like way more aggressive if in that term in societal terms uh, 
use of, uh, of, the, of the app. But the issue was that these kind of women were doing these performances. And that turned into like a, a, a total kind of chaos. <laughs> so it starts with calls, basically sharing of this video outside of this platform to on other platforms. It's starting by ridiculing them, mostly actually for anything else on class and lack of like uh, proficiency of English and how, the way they dress their aesthetics which is not like upper middle class aesthetics. And from there, they start talking about morality. And they start talking that these women are like doing, uh, I don't know, sex work. And just claims that have no grounds. But then we find the public prosecutor with a nine page online statement. And it's like, uh, sorry, 13 pages. The one for 13 pages statement to the public saying that they arrested uh, one of the of the main, uh, the, the main uh, celebrities of that platform called uh, uh, Hanin Hossein and accused her, it's the same day of her arrest, they're accusing her of human trafficking, of like many, many charges, but including human trafficking. And they create with the statement, this sense that this woman was like trafficking girls for sex work, underage girls, and like, so many charges and accusations, totally ungrounded, without any evidence that have just like questioned her for a couple of hours. And that starts a cycle or like a, a snowball that, and you see in the comments, hundreds of comments saying, great job, we love the public prosecutor, great public prosecutor. And then, oh, you should arrest as well another one who's really bad on TikTok. And you look at the names and back then we were doing like, because we we were trying to give uh, legal aid at this point and like follow the whole thing. And with the names, you could make a list of all the women who were arrested with the comments of the women who were arrested throughout the the, the following three months. So there's so a become, strong social uh, constituency you're saying for this moral yes, panic yes. who are they're ripped yeah, up into a frenzy this, or there's a kind exactly. of frenzy. There is like on one level, there is these kind of like independent lawyers who go to the public prosecutor and like do complain, like uh, present complaints against these women. There is the comment section. There is YouTubers, men YouTubers on uh, on YouTube making money out of like really showing the, the, the content of these women and, and like basically uh, really threatening them with, with the police and threatening them with jail sentences while making money from YouTube uh, of these videos. And there is this, it becomes like a, a, a total cycle of we ask for another woman to be arrested, she's arrested, and then the, the, the audience becomes so excited that they have so much power they can arrest these women. So they ask for another one. And within two, it's like within a year and a half, it was like about like 20 women arrested with the same pattern. And, and what, what was the effect of this? Oh, it, it, on one side, there was actually, uh, and oh, oh, so there is something common up for all these women. A charge was presenting as them based on a cybercrime law called violation of family values. And family values protection and protection of the children become the issue, become the issue. Oh, can you imagine if a girl, a young girl would watch this, how she would turn up if she sees that, if she sees Hanin, for example, as an example. We're talking about women who are sentenced. I mean, Hanin Hossein got sentenced of 10 years of prison for human trafficking without no grounds whatsoever or evidence. I mean, We've worked on the case file. I mean, there's nothing in the case that indicate any form of human trafficking or would like 
really remotely apply to human trafficking conditions. And this, this spectacle has created many things. So it created, first of all, I would like to mention this, uh, a solidarity, a, sh a show of solidarity that's unexpected, I would say, because when you have in your face a human trafficking charge, it's not very easy to go and stand up. And it was a local uh, solidarity because internationally people were so scared by the human trafficking uh, uh, charges. So it was first locally and then became an international thing. Uh, on the other level, on the other hand, it becomes that these charges are used like these threats of charges of violation of family values became a threat that men actually uh, charges at women that they don't like. So, for example, we had a case of uh, mob sexual assault that happened in uh, Midramr, in a city uh, in Egypt. And um, the lawyer of the defendant, uh, the accused of, uh, of the mob sexual assault, was on air threatening the victim with her personal photos from Instagram that were like... Uh, uh, that he got with going to to the prosecution and um, filing against her charges of violation of family values. So this very vague, of course. Yeah, exactly. And and these women become like easy targets, and everybody now knows that attacking these women, quote unquote, these women, TikTok women, or like similar women in in class and and apparel and everything is like a fair game. And we see like newspaper, uh, sorry, just news about like parents beating their, their girls because they're using TikTok. So TikTok is in itself criminalized and being that kind of girl is criminalized. And you become like an easy target of like uh, blackmail or for violence basically based on this. Yeah, I mean, the, the case was so extreme that it did attract some, you know, international uh, media coverage, which has obviously gone away. So we don't get the coverage of, of what, what the consequences or long-term impact um, might be, but also even in the coverage at the at the time, um, it you know it was certainly presented as this uh, crackdown on on women showing quote unquote you know um, you know uh, revealing videos or or whatever that in the West are seen as normal, and this whole uh, class element did not feature at, at, at all in, in that in that framing. And you're in you know as you've described it, it's essentially a, a key. We can't understand it without that. Um, we have probably have to wrap up, but before we do, uh, Kate, do you have anything to add? And I don't know if you want to say something about why these moral panics often end up taking the form of uh, anxiety around gender or um, sexuality. Um, sure. Like I think that when I was listening to Labna and I kind of thinking about this, like I, I thought about like two stakes that are being revealed here. And one of them has to do with, with power of masculinity uh, that feels threatened itself and uses it in order to reassert, uses the state and uh, in order to reassert its right to control over women, over children, over life, over 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 mental spaces over over uh, so it kind of shows the fear of of that agent of history who's been dominant for a long time fighting against the perceived threat to that domination but i also think that so that's kind of like a substantive um, stake but there is also more 
to me, like more more strategic, uh, and that has to do with political um, parties. And so, liberalism or kind of the neoliberalism produces two types of victims, right? Like on one hand, we have victims of capitalism, who are um, uh, the, the real victims of capitalism, and then we have also the manufactured victims of the advancement of the queers, of the blacks, of the women. And very skillful, very skillful politicians in Egypt, in Russia, in Poland, in the US, managed to kind of conflate the two and kind of garner the the, the anger over those who are losing status and kind of translate it in divert attention from the from you know the real culprit here which would be capitalism making people poorer making people lives more contingent more precarious I'm, I I do not want to say that only poor people are were support Donald Trump because that's not true I would it's it's a problem of kind of middle class white America um but I think that what I want to sort of say that there is this political component to it which has to do with the idea of conflation of threats and channeling them towards those who are challenging the powerful status status quo and diverting attention from victims of neoliberalism and capitalism. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. And yeah, I guess as both as we see um, continued attempts to, to, to forward rights, we will continue to see examples of moral panic. And just as we see social and economic change, not least in the wake of COVID, we will continue to see these moral panics uh, across across region. Um, thank you both for thank you both for joining. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the Century International Podcast. I'm Naira Antoun and I've been speaking with Kate Koritsky and Lubna Darwish as part of our Transnational Trends in Citizenship project, which brings together experts across region. Thank you. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.